This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from HealthEd, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practice. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthed.com.au. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for tonight's webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. Register now at healthed.com.au. If you feel less informed about the specialist treatment of a patient with a rare cancer, Be proactive and call the specialists to clarify any questions you may have about the treatment or a change of treatment. Apart from benefiting from the knowledge, a good relationship with the oncologist facilitates future communication and will result in better care of your patient. In this podcast, I will be speaking to Professor Stephen Della Fiorentina and Dr. Vincent Roach. Can you please tell us about yourselves? I'll start with you first, Stephen. Uh, thanks, David. Uh, I'm a medical oncologist, um, have been for uh, almost uh, 27 years. Uh, I'm the director of the Cancer Centre in uh, Campbelltown, the MacArthur Cancer Centre. I've been working in the Southern Highlands uh, as a medical oncologist since 1999. My Predominant clinical interests are around breast and lung cancer in terms of clinical research, but working in a rural area, I'm I'm a general oncologist. Um, I'm attached to the Western Sydney University, and I've been teaching medical students for all that time, as well as advanced trainees and and a number of generations of of future oncologists. Thank you, Stephen. And Vincent? Well, I've been a GP here in the Southern Highlands for 35 years. Uh, I'm a VMO at the local public and the local private hospital. I teach through the University of Wollongong and I have students attached to me on an ongoing basis for uh, both ward rounds and uh, surgery work. And I also have uh, usually about four to five registrars in my practice, so we're very much in a teaching-orientated general practice. We've got, uh, I think, 12 doctors um, over two sites. Well, thank you, Steve. Uh, Vincent, that's a fairly large practice you've got there. And I thank you both for joining us because this is a very interesting uh, discussion about how GPs can work effectively with oncologists uh, to support rare cancer patients. Um, not something we often see, but when we do see it, uh, we do feel uh, somewhat out on a limb, so to speak. So uh, we'll start with you first, Stephen. Um, what is a rare cancer from a diagnostic perspective? So, so classically rare cancers are those that have a low incidence, you know, uncommon cancers, maybe less than three to five percent of all types of cancers. So we all know breast, prostate, lung and bowel are probably the, the most common, but every other one, brain, esophagus, stomach, the gynecological cancers of that are, are, are classified as rare. The, the other thing is around 
um, rare presentations of common cancers. So, so often there are intersections of other medical comorbidities. So the person with heart failure who has breast cancer, the person with dementia who has prostate cancer are also rare presentations of common cancers. So everybody's an individual, um, every disease is treated differently, but, but strictly the low prevalence, the low incidence are, are those classically classified as a rare cancer. From your definition, Stephen, it looks like, first of all, as you said, rare in terms of uh, incidence, but when you broaden the other definition, it no longer becomes rare. That's true. Um, you know, that you've got to look at the whole person, um, their wishes, their other diseases, their other medications. And then so, as I said, sometimes a common cancer has very, you know, is, is actually a very uncommon presentation of a common cancer. And, and also with all the molecular diagnostics that we've got at the moment, there are probably five different breast cancers and 10 different types of lung cancer. So as each gets subclassified, every one of them becomes rarer and rarer. And, and Vincent, in your experience, uh, what is the role of the GP in supporting a rare cancer patient during and after treatment? Look, I, I think the role for the GP is very similar to the role for any cancer. Um, but I'm just aware of the fact that for the more common cancers, there, there's more information around for the patient and their family. Um, they're often uh, self-help groups. So take, for example, uh, breast cancer or even prostate cancer. Uh, there are groups out there that are easily identifiable with very good resources mm -hmm. to help our patients along the journey. Um, the, as you get to the less and less common cancers, less and less of that exists. And that often means that the uh, GP might have to do more of the research uh, more of the Googling, uh, just to get their, their patients and their families um, along the way of the journey. I'm just really wondering, uh, Vincent, whether you might have a recent example where um, something has just, someone had turned up um, where you've scratched your head uh, and where did you end up going to for information? I, I go to my local experts, okay. often Stephen. I go to... There's a wonderful search tool, which is called a medical degree plus Google. And uh, guide, guided, I make no bones about it. I use Google and Wiki, um, and, but very much guided by the fact that our education tells us to ignore the sites that are going to be relatively non-productive. Uh, but I, I do find myself doing a, a lot of Googling. Mm -hmm. um, I'll often Google with my patient at my shoulder or their family at my shoulder to show them how I how I search, how I look. Mm -hmm. um, I don't. I tell them I'm not an expert. This is an unusual cancer. I don't know much about it. Let's see what we can find out, and and just help them along along the way. Give them a sense that they're not the only ones out there trying to find answers. Well, I think that gives you a sense um, of not just being honest, uh, but if you um, slip up or say, "Look, I, I wasn't aware of that," uh, the patients knowing that you are new to this uh, condition would cut you a bit of slack. Look, I, the, the, our patients cut GPs slack all the time. And, you know, <laughs> that, that, that's literally the definition of a GP as being somebody who knows a very small amount about very many things. Uh, but our job, you know, the, the primary job of a GP is to tie these things together and particularly to tie it in together for our patients and their families.
Well said, Vincent. Do you think GPs are involved enough in the care of uh, rare cancer patients? Uh, if so, why? And if not, why not? The, the answer is probably, uh, as a passionate believer in GP care, that I think we can become more involved. Uh, and there, there are probably two answers to the why. One is that systemically, sometimes uh, the specialists in the cancer units don't teach and spread the knowledge to the GP. Mm -hmm. um, they will do it to the family, but if the fam if they don't do it to the GP, then the, I think the family and the, and the resident and the, and the patient have uh, lost a valuable resource resource in, in the GP. The other thing is that GPs may be afraid of something that they know very little about. Um, and I think in general practice, that is one of the things I see is that you know, there, there are things that we're confident to deal with because we deal with it commonly and all the time. And we may back off if there's something that's uncommon that we know relatively little about. So I, I think GPs, there's a space for GPs to get involved. Um, and I would encourage it because I think GPs very much complement uh, the health service, the specialist side of things, because we, um, we can be there most days a week, whereas often the specialist is only visiting once or twice a week, uh, has many other patients, more difficult to contact, more difficult to make an appointment to, to sit down and talk with. So I, I'm a passionate believer that GPs need to be involved more in this and need not be afraid of being ignorant. You are in a very special situation, and many uh, regional and rural doctors will know this. You, you seem to have a very good relationship with local specialists, not always so in the big urban centres. What would be a message you would give to, um, say, the big centres, uh, urban centred GPs, how to create a more personal relationship with the specialists around you? Well, I'd, I'd make two suggestions. One is in the quality of, of the letters. Probably the timeliness of the letters as well. Um, there's some oncology services, not Stevens Oncology Services, within our area, for example, where I get letters about visits that were three to four months ago. Uh, and that that's clearly is not helpful for either the GP, uh, the patient or their families. So timeliness, uh, adequacy, I think uh, are really important in helping that. Over to you, Stephen. How does the role of the oncologists intersect with the GP's responsibilities? So, I mean, a lot of that depends on where the patient's at in terms of has the diagnosis been made, uh, has a treatment plan been um, initiated. So I think, you know, there are a couple of ways early on. One is, you know, sometimes a struggle to make the diagnosis uh, and getting access to investigations, um, biopsies, PET scans, um, endoscopies, etc. cetera. Uh, and, and so potentially the connections that we have um, are, are often easier to get access to a PET scan and MRIs and particularly around some of the MBS um, uh, difficulties that GPs face with ordering those tests. Um, but also I think trying to you know, have a discussion early on about what the, the best approach might be um, rather than doing too many tests or too many blood tests, just saying this is what you know, I think needs to happen. And so that, that early discussion's um, actually helpful. And I think as, as Vince said, around sharing um, information, you know, credible, reliable, evidence-based information with the patients and the GPs. Okay. 
so I think you know the intersection is is clearly early on making the diagnosis. It's then communicating a treatment recommendation, um, what you've told the patient, what the patient's wishes are, um, what the potential side effects of the uh, treatments are, what are the alternatives, and then trying to inform the benefit of a therapy and the side effects. So that that those pros and cons are important and ensuring that the patient and the GP have the same information. So, you know, very often sharing your letter with the patient, then go to the GP and said, look, Stephen said this, what did he mean by this? And uh, trying to um, get, keep the jargon out of it. Um, and then clearly once treatment happens or um, as, as treatment fails and we're looking at end of life and transition to palliative care, you know, there are many interfaces uh, along a patient's journey with cancer. I, I might add to my answer, David, that yeah, um, personal contact and a phone call are actually invaluable. Not every patient needs a phone call every visit, uh, but there are some people where there, there might be a change in the course of the illness where, for example, we might be, the oncologist might be changing from one therapy to another therapy or even ceasing therapy altogether. And you cannot beat a phone call and phone calls make relationships over time. And uh, I always very appreciative. It's only in times in the course of an illness uh, mm. to get that phone call and also to be able to make that phone call. And as oncologists are generally very busy people with heavily booked clinics, often it's a matter of them getting back to us at another time. So uh, often you've got to leave your uh, mobile phone number and uh, the hard end of that is that for the specialists, they have a number of people they need to ring when they're finished at the end of the day, which just adds to their workload. But the closer those relationships, I think the lower the workload, the more fun it is. <laughs> and um, yeah, I always appreciate the, the either receiving or being able to make that phone call. Well, this question is actually for both of you. Um, so if you can take uh, turns to answer this. When I get a letter saying of a patient being put on to drugs, A, which I cannot pronounce, and B, I have no idea what they do, and therefore no idea what the side effects and potential interactions are, or what to monitor, what do I do with this? And the same question goes to you as well, Vincent, but I'll start with you, Stephen. You said that you'll share the information, but such information takes up a lot of space in letters. Uh, what, what are GPs supposed to do? Yeah, so I mean, generally, you know, we, we've got set information sheets for patients and, you know, I, I personally use EverQ from the New South Wales Cancer Institute. Uh, and so patients get a printout uh, of the uh, regimen that they're receiving and the potential toxicity. You know, I, I guess we don't always and you know, send that same information to the GP. We would hope that the patient would bring that in with them when they want to clarify something with the GP or, or the nurse coordinator. You know, it's always hard sending paper around the world, um, I guess, yeah, embedding links um, into letters uh, are possible. Then again, you know, all the IT issues around firewalls, et cetera. But, but I think, um, yeah, it's, it's that gaining access to credible uh, information uh, about a toxicity, but also the likelihood of, of, of something happening. You know, the way these information um, sheets work is that it shows every possible side effect known to man. Um, I, I think having an idea about what's common, what's uncommon, what's rare uh, is important when you're, you're trying to explain toxicity to, to patients and their, and their care team. In your experience, Vincent, 
We tend to know a lot less about the side effects, the toxicity, literally the benefits and the risks. And my general approach is to actually tell the patient and their family that the best person to talk to about that is the oncologist. With the commoner cancers and the commoner drugs, we, we know a bit more, uh, but I think there are only four chemotherapy drugs when I graduated, um, and two of them had been used as, uh, as weapons in the First World War. So there are now literally hundreds and thousands, and I marvel at how the oncologists can stay on top of them. But uh, end result is the GPs tend not to know much, mm -hmm. um, but we can always, always look them up. It does help a little bit if, again, if we've received a timely letter telling us what somebody has been changed to, uh, if we don't even know the name of the drug. Um, my, uh, my experience is that patients and their families very, very rarely bring that information in to show their GP. Occasionally they do, but it's, it's generally pretty rare. But at least being able to spell the drug, and that requires a, a relatively recent letter, uh, means that, again, we can you know, have a look at the, the, the product information and most product informations on modern drugs will give you um, real-life indications of uh, the commonest side effects uh, and the commonest side effects relative to placebo, which is really important. If 15% you know, of people uh, get nausea taking drug A but 12% uh, get nausea taking placebo, that's very, very good for a GP to know. But most of that's now in modern product information. And the most important thing, I think, is us being able to identify the drug, look it up and help walk the patients through it. The following message is a community service announcement. I'm Professor Andrew Sindoni, cardiologist at Concord Hospital in Riot Hospital in Sydney. I'm talking today about the fact that we may be missing aortic stenosis in primary care. New prevalence data actually shows that many severe symptomatic people with aortic stenosis in Australia go undiagnosed or untreated. The prevalence of symptomatic severe aortic stenosis in Australia is about 60,510 people, but only 7,073 of those with people with severe symptomatic aortic stenosis receive aortic valve replacement. Certain factors do increase the risk of developing aortic stenosis, and it's what we see every day. Advancing age, people over the age of 65, cardiovascular risk factors like hypertension, diabetes, cigarette smoking, and other conditions, chronic kidney disease, coronary artery disease. If we don't think about aortic stenosis, we're not going to find it. So if someone reports these sorts of things, grab your stethoscope, have a listen to their chest. Maybe you haven't listened to their chest for a long time or ever because they've you know, not come to you very often or they come with other reasons. This is a condition in which we can intervene. We can make a difference with surgical aortic valve replacement and nowadays with modern therapies with transcutaneous aortic valve implantation. This has now been extended to older people who previously would have been felt to be not suitable for surgery. You say, oh, that person's old, you know, they're not going to survive an operation. This is not a general anaesthetic operation necessarily. It's a procedure which is done under sedation and local anaesthetic in the femoral artery. And this can make a huge difference to symptoms and survival, keeping people out of hospital and really make a difference to their quality of life. If you think someone has aortic stenosis when you listen to their heart, or if they have those symptoms of shortness of breath, fatigue, syncope, chest pain, if you listen to the heart and you hear a murmur, either refer them for an echocardiogram or send them to see their cardiologist. Listen, suspect, refer. 
I guess what I'm thinking about is that um, I know the oncologists are very busy people, but so are you too. The GPs are often busy. And, and so I, I have a question in my mind because some side effects like nausea look, except for the fact that the livers are fine and it's not a cause of, or caused by something systemic. The thing that bothers me are things like white cell changes, uh, you know, expect some kind of a lymphopenia or a neutropenia. The problem is, we don't actually know what numbers to get worried about and what to actually do when the numbers are reached. And, and I wonder whether those sorts of things are commonly put into letters where these sorts of red flag situations are pretty much alerted to the GP so we know what to look for. I, I might address that first of all. To have the luxury of being concerned by that means that you've actually got the results. And it is very difficult for oncologists and cancer centres uh, to get their pathology services to send copies to, to GPs. So very frequently, GPs don't have access to uh, the latest results. In our local health district, our pathology service has recently actually started sending GPs results on the internet, but only if the GP orders it, they don't automatically send results to a GP. So firstly, knowing the results and not having to go hold on the end of a phone for five or 10 minutes to find out what the hemoglobin taken last week was, it is really important to share those results with GPs in the first place. And, and then of course, be guided. And again, if a GP sees a result, not sure of the significance of that result or that side effect to have a good channel of communication with the specialist even if it's a yeah, message left, uh, yeah, please call me back or SMS me, whatever. My patients dropped their hemoglobin by uh, yeah, five points. Should I expect this? Yep. Or it's a head up to the oncologist that there might be something going on that they're not aware of. Stephen, you're aware of this loss of um, information, of, if you like, the seamless flow of information? And, and you know, Vince is, is a very common problem you know, all over the world. Um, is getting access to the same information at the same time because you know I'll have one saying oh you know my GP has done this uh, test what about it and I said well I, I haven't seen it either so that that, that sharing of, uh, of information and communication and, and access is a real real problem in, in a, an alleged IT connected health service but but it's also around um, uh, uh, different levels of comfort with abnormal tests mm -hmm. so, so you know, I think it's clear that Oncologists and hematologists don't tend to bat an eyelid, you know, with low white cell counts, unless the patient has a fever or they're unwell. Whereas it's fairly uncommon, I would think, for GPs to see white cell counts under one. Um, and so it's it's that level of comfort um, and and what is abnormal and what do you worry about? Uh, and again, trying to communicate that uh, is important because many people will have asymptomatic thrombocytopenia, but unless they're bleeding or bruising, um, we wouldn't necessarily need to intervene. So it's, it's that level of comfort or of what is normal and what is abnormal but acceptable, uh, as opposed to abnormal and unacceptable that, that needs you know, more urgent intervention. Uh, and, and that's just a long education process um, you know, between medical and nursing staff. And, and I think if all of the results come through, 
then it's easy for the GP to see a trend. They get a platelet count of, of, of 50, and they saw that the last platelet count was 60, hmm. they're unlikely to panic. But if this is the first set of results out of the last half dozen that have got to the GP, they look at that and think, oh, my God, what's happening? And so it's important that, again, it's uh, the key is in the information. Systems are getting better. Uh, there's a new system called IRAD that's being rolled out in our region uh, where both specialists and GPs can go up into a cloud where these results of investigations uh, are stored and can access them. And uh, when that is truly working well, that'll make a huge difference. Probably 10 to 20% of my day is spent chasing results that aren't immediately available. And if we can get our hands on that. So there will be systemic things that make our job easier. Yeah, that's a very good point, Vincent. Now, we've just demonstrated some of the challenges uh, in the relationship. What, what sort of other challenges uh, have you come across in your experience and how can, they, how can these challenges be overcome? Well, I'll, I'll, I'm happy to kick that one off. One is when there doesn't appear to be a shared vision of the advantage or the futility of treatment. And sometimes um, this is because patients and their families will say one thing to an oncologist and another thing to their GP. I appreciate that quite often happens. But when you can see somebody is deteriorating in front of your eyes, you, you make the estimation based on experience that we are approaching the end of life and one starts worrying about the futility of ongoing treatment. And it's not always, it's not black and white because sometimes treatment, uh, oncology treatment can be palliative as well and involved in you know, symptom control and, and and you know, gaining more comfort for patients. Um, but it's not always clear. And for me, the best way to sort that out is always a quick phone call. Stephen? Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's around those critical points um, in, in the patient's management, you know, um, cessation of treatment, transition to end of life, significant complications. You know, I, I think those things, you know, re require a level of um, communication that is verbal. Um, and not necessarily by by letter or by mail or by by you know things three months down the track that that's that's unhelpful and um, you know I think you know we've been pushed into telehealth pretty quickly which is important um, and I think it behoves all specialists to set aside some time in their week um, you know to follow up with phone calls and you know actually timetable that in now whether that always matches with the GP's availability, well, we'll just have to, you know, work around that. But, but I think it is those phone calls, those follow-ups, those, you know, there's a letter coming, this is what's happened, they're going to be seeing you next week. Um, you know, I think you have to sort of prepare the GP for when somebody walks in and says, oh, the treatment's not working, um, can you arrange A, B and C, please? So, so I think, you know, you've, you've got to build those relationships and you've got to communicate for the patient's benefit. Yeah, I, I would echo that and, and, and go further to say that, as I said before, I don't think a GP needs to talk to the oncologist about every patient and doesn't need to talk to the oncologist about every development in every patient. But as in any team you work in, whether it's a clinical team or oncology or palliative care or whatever we work in, um, I think it's 
really important that you have a sense of how the other person is thinking. And that's how teams work best, when you know the other person, the other caregiver, well enough to know how they think. And that means that you can actually give the, uh, give the patient and their families the reassurance that we're working on this as a team. Yeah, I know how Dr. Della thinks because yeah, I talk to him regularly and I think you'll find that we do blah, blah, blah. And that actually makes our support for the patient and their family often much, much stronger. So I think actually seeing the whites of a specialist eyes now, some areas that's done through education. And uh, that's one thing uh, that has suffered, I think, as a result of Zoom. We no longer have the, the dinners and the, the large group meetings where people will come along. Uh, local specialists will come and talk to GPs. But that was really good because you get a sense of how people think and that can really reinforce how you can help your, your, um, your patients and their families to travel through the journey. David, I think, you know, just to add there as well, you know, that, that shared mental model where, where the GP and the specialist can actually communicate rather than waiting for a letter to be that intermediary or waiting for the patient to transfer that information, knowing that they may forget, they may um, misinterpret, you know, it's not fair for them to be the, the, the conduit or the messenger. Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, the, the two health practitioners need to get together and say, this is what I've just told your patient. Um, and, and, and in that way, we're on the same page. About 90% of what I've heard um, so far is the incredible benefits that can be derived from a very close communication uh, between the specialists and the GPs, especially about what you call the critical moments uh, when you change treatment or when you decide uh, to swap across to uh, palliative care. I, I hear that very clearly. I I'm very thankful that Vincent keeps telling us that there are um, things happening to allow us uh, better communication. But I love that old-fashioned see the whites of their eyes and have a good check to them. And it's, it's this personal relationship that seems to add not just that amount of extra care for the patient, but that extra, if you like, relationship between the GP and the specialist, which is a little bit lost in the big cities. It certainly is harder in the city. And Stephen also does practice on the edge of the city and and uh, I think he'd be the, the first to acknowledge it's several degrees tougher down there. And, uh, you know, the GPs don't know the specialists as well. Uh, often the GPs don't know the families quite as well uh, because in a country town, everybody's related to everybody or worked for somebody or you ran up and down the side of the hockey pitch together. So there, there, there are certainly things in rural settings that make it easier. But that's never an excuse to say too hard in the city we've just got to work harder yeah and and yeah you know, so sometimes you know the isolation um that um happens in the country in the rural is our benefit because yeah. it's just vince and i you know we, we don't have layers of registrars or nurse consultants or you know pe people to get in the way and and so you know for, for, i think for city practices and and major tertiary hospitals you know you've got to find you know, how do you get to the key person um, and, and I think just just trying to crack open that ceiling, say, look, hey, I'm a new GP in this area. What's the best way to contact you about my breast patients? 
and, and trying to find that pathway in rather than going through five different telephone numbers like a call center. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's not great customer service for uh, anybody. The last two questions, I might combine them. Uh, what are the benefits for patients when GPs and oncologists work closely in shared care? And especially for you, Vincent, what's it in it for GPs to be more involved? As, as I come not quite at the close of my career, but you know, I'm often evaluating, particularly when younger doctors um, who are still doing their hospital training say, what should I do? And I keep thinking, what are the benefits um, of being a GP? And yeah, apart from the obvious benefits of paying your mortgage and putting your kids through school, the benefit is, is in the backstory. It's in growing close to families, seeing families and, and patients over a linear period of years and, and even decades. And there, there is a huge richness there. There are financial rewards in that. As families grow to trust you, they bring business to you, they bring their friends and their other uh, family members to you. Uh, so it's not just a, a warm feeling. Um, but at, at, at the end of the day, most of us as doctors make a reasonable income. And it's the other things that really make our lives truly enjoyable and truly beneficial um, and just grateful people. And I can tell you the grateful people who trust you and trust you to the point that, you know, they'll bring their, their friends along or bring their other members of their family along. It makes you feel good. But at the end of the day, as I said, you know, most of us will pay our mortgage off and most of us put bread on the table. It's that feeling good, feeling that you've done a good job and feeling that you've done a good job for another human being is really what makes us tick. I'm sure it's the same for specialists, but in GPs, you've got that longitudinal thing. As Stephen could tell you, um, their length is the length of an illness. Occasionally in the country, you, you might deal with several members of the same family. Uh, and Stephen does do that from time to time. But that beauty of being there for years and decades um, is just an extraordinarily powerful tool that allows GPs to feel good. And Stephen, what are the benefits for patients when GPs and oncologists work closely in shared care? Yeah, look, I think you, you're getting um, other viewpoints in, in terms of benefits of, of, of treatments, and um, but but you've also got earlier access or so earlier detection of toxicity, um, earlier intervention, uh, rather than patients becoming unwell and then coming to emergency. You've got the issues around survivorship and longer term toxicities or management of chronic pain that sometimes patients are left with with some of our treatments. You've, you've got also the potential secondary benefits of you know, smoking cessation, um, exercise, um, Weight, weight management, which are all potentially pre-malignant conditions as well. And I think that that is, that, that is important with a close uh, general practitioner relationship. And the other thing is around the allied health interventions, you know, the psychosocial aspects, um, the um, dietitians, you know, all, all, all those aspects that generally GPs have greater access to than, than, than specialists often. So it's, it's really trying to provide that complete care, psychological, physical, um, etc. So, um, and it is, you know, it is these long-term relationships, which is great. It's, it's a storytelling. It's the um, ability to tell patients, you know, I've seen people beat this. I, I've seen people in your situation uh, who have obtained a benefit. And, and I think those, um, you know, they're, they're, they're fairly powerful stories for, for, for patients in terms of realising that they're not alone uh, and that they do have um, 
people around them who can who can help them. So yeah, and I think it, it is it, it's the reason we all do medicine in the first place is to help patients and you know having that relationship with other health practitioners yeah helps you enormously. The other thing I might add to that is is that being a GP and we know that that our um, oncology is not always successful. Uh, it allows the perfect segue into palliative care and then end of life care. And I think that's one of the, the real uh, values of the involvement of the GP through cancer treatment uh, in such times as when the treatment is unsuccessful. The GP already has that relationship, uh, shares the trust and can help on that journey into palliative care and end of life care. Look, I think you both are really give me an understanding of how you both work and how important it is that you both work together and how GPs and oncologists uh, ought to work closely in, in rare cancer treatment patients, in fact, in all cancer patients. I just wonder if any of you have some key messages uh, to our listeners as we close this podcast. Steve. Communicate, communicate, communicate are the three most important rules, <laughs> I think. Communicate with your patients, communicate with their families, communicate with your colleagues, with your specialist colleagues and, and your GP colleagues who share the load and um, yeah, communicate. Hear you loud and clear, Vince. What about you, Stephen? And, and you know, no one can care for a patient on their own. Uh, and so the, the more you surround the patient with, with key personnel, um, medical, allied health, pharmacy, nursing, the whole lot, um, the better care the patients are gonna get. And, and the person that the patient met first is their general practitioner. And very often the person that they meet at the end is their general practitioner. And I think you've got to get that continuity. So I think you know, you've, you've just got to understand everybody's um, roles, everybody's, um, you know, the, the, the benefits that everybody brings to the table. And I think that continuity of care where the, where the GPs made the diagnosis or suspected the diagnosis, um, you've got to keep them involved from day one till the end. Stephen and Vince, I thank you for giving me your time and sharing, I guess, your walk and journey in this particular instance uh, called the care of patients with rare cancers. But really, we're talking about the care of patients full stop, really, isn't it? Thank you, David. Thank you, thank you gentlemen, for the time and wish you a very good day. Thank, thank you. you. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for tonight's webcast, where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.